Well, hey, everybody. This is the Everyday Missionary Podcast. I'm Matt. I'm here doing a podcast. And uh, I think this is episode, like, I don't know, like 209, 309, 509, 10, somewhere in there. No, I'm kidding. I'm kind of kidding. All right. Now you're like, wow, Matt just sounds like completely spent this morning. Well, kind of. And so here's the story. Um, as some of you may or may not know, I live up in the hills a little bit outside of Duval. And out here in the hills, it's a little bit of the Wild West at times. And so it is not uncommon necessarily to have in the middle of the night somebody decide to discharge a firearm to, I don't know, scare off a bear or a cougar or a coyote or whatever else, right? Because I live in a menagerie of wild animals up here and people use firearms to kind of just shoo things out of their yard. That's what happens. Well, at 2.06 a.m. last night, some reckless drunk hillbilly or something, I don't know what it was, decided that they needed to fire their firearm not once, not twice, but there was 13 rhythmic discharges of whatever weapon they were firing, followed by then a complete emptying of their 30-round magazine. The first 13 rounds were rhythmic. The remainder of those were sporadic, chaotic, crazy, like they were pulling their finger as fast as they could. And then they proceeded to change to a different caliber of weapon, giant boom, followed by switching to a smaller caliber of weapon with a few more booms, right? By that point, you're firmly awake. And that was my life last night. So uh, I've sort of been up basically since two o'clock, finally managed to kind of fall asleep, probably just before daybreak, only to get back up. It's just the way it works or whatever else. And so I don't know who the numbskull was that felt they had to just pull out their entire arsenal and to wake up the neighborhood, but it sort of puts you in a mood. All right. So I'm a bit of a mood today for sure. I'm a little bit tired, but it's not terrible. It's just how it works. So nonetheless, we have topics for the day and the topics for the day. Oh man, I guarantee you, I've already put a bunch of fluid scalding hot inside my bathtub because by the end of this, I'm sure I will be in hot water. So I can go straight from the podcast straight to being in the hot water in my tub and we'll go from there. Now, um, actually, I'm going to get into a couple of different topics today. One was the topic that I wanted to address and then the other, maybe the first one, is I just thought I would give some some perspective on a topic that I've been interacting with lots of different people about. It's been a pretty lengthy conversation or broad conversation in society. And so I wanted to kind of deal with that on top of then a follow-up issue that has some relationship. Uh, and I have no doubt that for some of you, you're going to hear it and you're going to be like, that's right. Amen. And for others of you, you're going to hear it and you're going to be like, we may need to consider leaving Redemption Church or no longer listening to this Yahoo because he is pushing right near my buttons that are sensitive. Now, with that said, I want to be clear about something as I go into this, which is anytime uh, I decide on the podcast to deal with difficult topics, there is one exclusive reason for that. And that is the fact that this is called the everyday missionary. And I've said this many times before that if we don't deal with hard subjects on the everyday missionary, we're never going to figure out how to be everyday missionaries on the hard subjects, right? That's just not going to happen that way. And so we have to kind of address those tender areas 
of conversation because those are the areas that we live in. Those are the areas that we are divided over. And we're trying to figure out how to bring Jesus into those divided areas. And so that's kind of the first thing. The second thing is that I don't bring up tender subjects sometimes because I'm trying to be uh, a provocatory punk. Now, for those who knew me 10 years ago, 15 years ago, they'd be like, no, Matt thrives on being a provocative punk. He loves to push the buttons, get people fired up just to be just kind of the contrarian for the sake of being the contrarian. Um, that used to be me in a lot of ways, but I have grown very fatigued on that. And by that, there's an entire industry behind that now uh, that only divides us further. And that is not my mission or my heart. My heart is to go, all right, Jesus calls us to do some very difficult things in this world. He leaves us in this world, not so we can pursue our ambitions, our rights, our wants, our American dream, our sense of utopia and my little cul-de-sac or whatever it is. No, he calls us to represent and be ambassadors of a world that is different than this world that literally looks at the way the world does things and does those things in opposite ways, right? Like that's the essence of holiness. It's uncommon from the way the world does things. It's this demonstration of biblically saturated love. And I want to maybe go a step further than that. I don't even know if I like using the word biblically saturated love because what I want to be clear about there is the love we see in Christ as displayed in the Bible, right? Because I think sometimes people pick other parts of the Bible and build a theology of love around other parts. Like, well, if I tell them the truth, that's love. And I'm like, and if they didn't feel in any way that you loved them in the process of that, that's not love. That's just a lecture. Um, and so Christ saturated love is the love we see de demonstrated in the person of Christ who lays his life down for his friends, who does things for the least of these, you know, who uh, actually wants to love God and love the neighbors as himself, like that version of love is what we're supposed to do. And so, you know, <clears throat> that's way more my heart in this is to say, all right, we're supposed to be like Jesus in all of the things we do. And we're supposed to do the toughest stuff that Jesus calls us to, because that's the only stuff that really matters. And therefore, this whole Christian thing really is not meant to be about me it's meant to be about others, even at the cost of me. Now, that doesn't mean at the cost of also sinning, just means at the cost of me. And so uh, with that, it also means that then we have to do a really good job of saying, hey, there may be some good things. There may even be some important things that I don't want to have become distractions from the main thing. And so I will push aside my issues on the good or important things so I can keep the main thing the main thing, that I don't bring a tarnishing to the reputation of Jesus or to the gospel of Jesus or to the heart of God for his kingdom to break into the world. I don't want people to get distracted by other things. If anything, if they don't like me, I don't want them to like me because I look a lot like Jesus and that just pisses them off, frankly, because Jesus was just too much of a nice guy that laid himself down. Out. Like, you know, like it, it needs to be that more than anything else, right? That's kind of the heart I'm getting at behind all of this. Now, with that said, right, you get the, hopefully you get my heart in that. I'm not here to pick a fight. I'm not here to um, be difficult. I'm not here to judge anybody, but I am here to kind of push in an area, but from the intentions of saying the gospel matters, right? That's what I'm trying to get at here. Uh, the gospel matters. Um, Christ represented well matters. And if we do things that obscure those two things, whatever that thing is that obscures it is dramatically problematic. Or maybe even more particular, if we're going down roads on things that give a different understanding of 
Christ and his kingdom or Christianity and Jesus um, or Jesus and the gospel, like however you want to say it, if we're doing things that, that is conflating worldly things with Jesus things so that the world looks and says, well, where does Jesus leave off and your, your religious worldliness begin? Like when that happens, that can be super, super problematic. And, and I think I was even thinking about this or like that. This is a really long preamble. When are you going to get to it, bro? I know. Hold on a second. Though. So um, I was thinking about this um, in a conversation I was having yesterday with somebody in our community that is a former Christian walked away because they're like, Christians are nothing like Christ, you know, uh, can't do it anymore. And, and so we're out. And, and, you know, I don't even know where they would put themselves on the spiritual spectrum of things. Uh, great conversation, great person, very much enjoyed them. And, and they were like, you know, it's just really strange as I look at, at, evangelical Christians, because we were kind of having that conversation because they're aware that I'm a pastor and everything else. And and they're like, you know, as I watch evangelical Christians, I just don't understand why they're so obstinate in refusing to want to love their neighbors. And it was in relationship to vaccinations and masks and everything that's been going on with COVID. And, you know, so that was kind of their, their framework. And I just, again, I always find it interesting that the way that this is getting translated by people is that they they translate it as a why is it that Christians don't love their neighbor because like their whole head honcho said that that was like the big deal you know and I keep running into that I keep running into the the critique of us as Christians is uh, that we don't love our neighbors when it comes to the topic of COVID for example right now uh, and and. I keep getting burdened by that because I know we want to be defensive and say, no, I'm loving my neighbors. It's just, I don't agree with this for this scientific reason or this research paper or this personal political decision or whatever else. And, and I, I just kind of push all of that aside for a minute. And I just go, the headline is that the perception of disbelieving people is that we don't love them. That, that's a headline. You know, we get all lost in the, no, but I read a report on this and I saw this thing on Facebook and Twitter had this thing and I listened to a podcast about a guy who was a doctor and a thing and everything else. And I'm like, that's not the headline. The headline just continues to be Christians don't love their neighbor. Like, that's the part that troubles me. Because if there's anything that is on the final exam, it's not only that we loved our neighbor, but it's that we loved our neighbor that was the least of these and therefore, we should be going way out of our way to reinforce, no, in fact, I do love you. No, I do care for you. No, I am interested in you. No, I'm willing to sacrifice myself for your better good. Like, all of that should be the thing that we are about. And yet, why is it that we don't have that reputation? Now, that isn't to say that all Christians are falling down on the job. That's not really to say it at all. But I'm saying as a stereotypical whole, that is the way it's getting interpreted right now. And I can understand this, right? Especially think over the last year, year and a half, as uh, I have heard from people and read people's social media posts and things of that nature, there was this sense of I'm not going to be shackled by the government and be forced to do these things. I've got my rights. And what it often sounded like to me, just as I'm sitting there as a pastor trying to figure out how to navigate this, it did sound like me before you. And it did sound like, you know what, if my my neighbor should just stay home, if they're freaked out about it, they should stay home. And so you got to understand from those kind of perspectives, you know, like I'm not going to let my rights or my freedom or my way of life to be in 
pinged in some way. And if they're potentially sick, if they have underlying conditions, if they're old, they should just stay home. Like that kind of reasoning that was pumped out there was enough for people to be like, yeah, you guys are a lot of things, but loving is not what I'm hearing just ooze from your, your, your lives necessarily. And so the accusation that we don't love our neighbor is one that I I find even sometimes as a pastor then is very hard for me to be able to counteract and be like, no, what are you talking about? Here's all the ways that we do. You know, it's like I found myself just going, yeah, I get it. I understand. You know, I I don't know why we're responding this way always. I don't understand why it's churches that were at the front line, front of the line to go after governors about being open and things like that. You know, it was just like, I'm like, I don't have a great answer for that. It, I, it didn't, none of it sounded like Jesus to me where they were like, Mr. or Mrs. Governor, let's sit down and reason together. We're trying to work this through. You're trying to work this through. We want to help you as much as we can, but we also want to protect our ability to worship. And so what's a way we can do this? It was kind of interest instantly, like you're violating our rights. You have no right to do this. It was, there was no sense of how do we come as servants to a social or health crisis. It was, no, we're going to come as people with rights and we're going to demand those rights in the midst of the crisis. And that just didn't sound like loving our cities or loving our communities or loving our neighbors or loving our political leaders or whatever else. It sounded like something utterly different than that. And so this continues to weigh on my heart as I continue to see different things uh, kind of play out. And so this then kind of leads into the freebie topic that I wanted to talk about just because I've been wanting to maybe just kind of share my my heart on this a little bit. And then maybe into the actual topic of the podcast for the day. So, um, obviously, in recent weeks now, you know, things have been certainly complicated here in Washington state as the governor has um, brought forth not only renewed mask mandates, that's certainly part of the thing, but the one that's certainly been more troubling for uh, a segment of people has been the um, mandatory vaccinations for COVID as it relates to, I think, the executive branch of state government, as well as uh, medical workers and um, like uh, care facilities, things of that nature, right? And and so in this, it's like there's now a mandate that you have to do this thing. uh, And then with the exemption of exemptions. So there were two exemptions that are cited in all of this. So one exemption was a health exemption. If you have a reason that you cannot medically take the vaccination, there's that. And then the other was um, the exemption for religious purposes. And and here's why I'm trying to bring this up a little bit. Because, uh, you know, as I've, I've tried to talk through it with fellow pastors and talk to various different Christians and everything else, you know, it, it was interesting because what it did is it did put us as pastors in the place of arbiters uh, of exemptions. Um, and then even this morning, uh, Pastor Scott sent me a thing from the King County um, Republican Party that was basically a form letter of here's a religious exemption, which I'll be honest, I'm very troubled when political organizations release religious documentation uh, for exemptions religiously. I think that just seems problematic to me. That's just my own personal take. It's one thing if a church generates it. It's another thing when a political party generates it. I read it and there was a lot of disagreement I actually had with the document, which inherently shows part of the problem to me is an exemption should have real clarity behind it from a religious perspective. And here's what I mean by this. And I want to be really nuanced right now. So I please listen for the next five minutes intently. And then you're free to judge me after that. Um, but here's where I'm sensitive. I go, 
there's like, and I articulated this recently with a handful of different people, that there's like three buckets that I think in life we deal with. One bucket is the biblical bucket, and one bucket is our social, political um, kind of upbringing bucket, and then one is our internal conscience bucket. Like, those are three different buckets. And what religion can navigate pretty okay (laughs) is the Bible bucket. Like, it's trained to navigate the Bible bucket. Navigating the other two buckets are a little tricky, especially the conscience, because the conscience is different for every person. Paul gets into that, right? He gets into that in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. He gets into that in Romans chapter 14, um, that conscience is difficult to navigate. When it comes to political, social, upbringing, bucket, that one is a, a mix of a lot of different things. But religion, it should be able to do Bible bucket Okay, of those three things. And so from that, the question becomes, in a religious exemption, should the religious exemption be appealing to conscience, appealing to politics, or appealing to Bible? And and I think in the mix of that, the only place it can really appeal is to Bible. So that's the first point of this. And certainly the the exemption I was reading from from the Republican Party that they issued had a lot of Bible stuff in it. Now, what was interesting about a lot of the Bible stuff that was in it, it was uh, kind of combing through places like Leviticus and some of the interesting areas of the law, some of the things pertaining to uh, uh, dead children and things like that. So it was, it was pulling from a lot of obscureness to kind of build a framework for the exemption from the Bible. Um, and so that was part of where I kind of went like, wow, well, if you're going to use that, you got to go all in. You can't, you can't use such specificity of example in some of those Levitical laws and not go all the way and say, this is why, you know, like an employee isn't required to wear a certain kind of uniform at work because again, you know, a person could get a religious exemption from wearing poly cotton blends if they wanted to. I mean, like I was looking at this going, gosh, should we take this to its logical conclusion, Religious exemption could get you out of being responsible on a lot of things at work. So that was part of where I, I kind of had a concern with the, the tone of the religious exemption. So A, I had a concern with the fact that it was a political entity releasing a religious document for an exemption religiously that seems very politically motivated. That was part one. Part two, the stacking of verses that were used within the document. I was concerned by the magnitude of the fact that, you know what, uh, a lot of these things we all as Christians do not do because they are in the Old Testament law and Jesus kind of dealt with that in a very interesting way. So I think that was a cautionary tale there as well. And there were some other things in there that are probably more of my opinion than anything I could want to just try to root squarely in scripture. So I'm not going to go that far with that. But from that, I went, this is part of the problem for me personally, then with the religious exemption as a pastor who would be um, endorsing that or signing off on it or whatever else is that I go, I don't think if it's consistently applied, that creates a lot of different messes, right? So that was kind of one part of it. The second part is that I think there is room for people to have, quote, a religious exemption um, for things that have been consistently and historically held by a particular religious group. So, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses, um, they have consistently, to the point of dying, (laughs) um, said no blood transfusions, no organ donation and transplant. So they're like, we will die before we seek that kind of medical intervention. I go, man, you've had a heritage of decades of maintaining that. You've had many of your people die to uphold that perspective. You've created a legacy of that exemption 
that's an exemption. Like I go, that's legitimate. Or Christian scientists who will seek no outside Western medical treatment whatsoever. Everything is purely holistic. I go, you've consistently done that, right? You'll knock your tooth out before you'll go to a dentist. Like you, you've, you've proven that you stand against the, the modern marvels, if you will, and you've let yourself die in droves to prove that. All right. That seems to be a legitimate conviction proven that's rooted in your theological context and they build bridges to it, right? So like the Jehovah's Witnesses go, because of the resurrection, we don't swap body parts. It's kind of their theological purpose. And so they had a clear theological identity then connected to uh, an outplay of things in the real world in the medical community, right? So in my mind, I'm like, if we are suddenly coming up with an exemption for one particular vaccination, this is very um, like not the way exemptions have typically been seen. It's very kind of uh, opportunistic to the problem. And I don't mean that like in a harsh way. Just go like, that's the way it starts to kind of feel like I've never wanted a religious exemption before. I've never had a problem with all of these things before. Suddenly now I have a religious exemption to this thing. I think what people actually have is a conscience exemption, which goes back to my three buckets. They have a political exemption, right? So conscience bucket, political social upbringing bucket they have they want those are what they're most sensing and then they want an exemption which has to do with theological heritage uh and bible exemption and i go therefore what they're going to do is try to figure out how can i make the bible fit those other two categories and create the religious exemption right from that what my position has been is that i i would not be willing to sign off on an exemption i don't i don't i don't find that having a religious exemption under that kind of dynamic is at all what a religious exemption is intended to do. A religious exemption should be something that is born out of a long heritage of a biblical theme that has theological implication that has been processed through over a long, long course of time. That should cause an exemption to be true, not six months ago, I wouldn't have thought about this, but now I'm thinking about this. Like That's kind of the concern I had about that. Now, here's the deeper concern I have about that, though. And this goes back to the whole being Jesus in society is a lot of disbelieving people are watching and they're going, these people are going to use their religion to not get a vaccination motivated more by their conscience or their politics than it is motivated by a longstanding historic tradition that honors Jesus. There's just another example about how religion is more for itself than for others and it doesn't love its neighbor. Now, I want to be clear again right now. I'm not saying that's what is real, but I am saying that is what is perceived. And I'm already hearing that from disbelieving people in my life that go, you got to be kidding me. You got to be kidding. There's going to be now a, an exemption that churches are passing out. There was a church in California, a mega church that said, come far and wide. We'll give everybody an exemption who wants it because this is not right. The government's doing this. And it was interesting because the communication of it was Again, it wasn't like, here's these clear biblical passages on how this is problematic. It was no government shouldn't be allowed to do this. And because of that, we're going to go and come through the Bible, build a case, and then present it. And I go, that's kind of what we call in biblical studies, eisegesis. It's reading into the text what you want to find so that you can build an argument. And and when I was kind of looking at all of this and, and looking at it together, it's not that I am not sympathetic to the to the deep burden that people are feeling when they're feeling like, you know, my government is forcing me to do a thing that I don't want to do. Like, I totally get that. I 
understand that a person may look and say, well, to me, the Bible would say it this way. And then my upbringing and culture or social or political position would say it this way. And my conscience is it this way. So Matt, all three of those are kind of in concert that I can't do this. And I, and I'm a hundred percent, not only sympathetic, I'm, I would, I would stand by that person and say, then, then you are not free to, to do this thing. Um, and part of what's interesting about obeying Christ in crisis is that oftentimes it means a certain level of sacrifice. So I go, you know, if a person says, I just can't do it, I respect the fact that they're willing to lose their job to not do it. Like, I really do respect that. I, I honestly go like, man, that reminds me of the Jehovah's Witnesses and these other people, you know, that had strong convictions and they're willing to to either give up their livelihood or die for whatever their conviction. Like I go like, wow, a person that says, I just can't cross that line. I can't do that thing. Uh, I'm willing to personally suffer for it. Man, if that's what God has led you to do, I think there's something there. Well, I think he will quite possibly bless you pretty deeply for you're willing to sacrifice for that. But that to me is different than trying to quickly scramble away to come up with an exemption so I don't have to suffer for my position and I can make the Bible kind of fit the position I'm trying to to get right now and create an exemption that wouldn't have been there a year ago, two years, five years, 10 years ago. It doesn't have any real heritage in our Christian belief system. That That's where this all gets stickier for me. And so I hope you can understand what what hopefully my tone is coming out right. I sometimes worry about that. That's why I actually choose to do so many things verbally because um, I want to capture tone and I want to say I get the complexity, but it seems that in the complexity of that, the Christian thing is always to suffer with joy. The Christian thing is always to be an example of not grumbling or complaining. And the Christian example is to not try to recalibrate the Bible to not only fit a modern problem, but to fit a modern problem designed to give me an exemption um, in the name of my religion that, again, like I said, has no bearing in the history of our religious practice or tradition. If it did, it would make more sense to say, oh, no, this makes sense. It's a religious exemption. We've believed this forever. <laughs> you know what I mean? We, we've been opposed to all vaccinations from day one on religious per- grounds or whatever else, but that has not necessarily been the case. And so that's where it gets more problematic. Now, I know there's some nuances in there and I know there's some of you that are going to want to say, well, what about this? What about that? I'm just trying to holistically say, here's the bigger thing. Aside from kind of how I had to process it through, which that was just inviting you into how a pastor has to process through stuff. And certainly not all pastors agree. There's some that would listen to this and like, Matt, I'm on the other side. I'm going to sign every exemption at the cross of my desk because I don't think this is right. You know, that's that's part of the, the context that we live in. Um, my Again, my pushback would be based on what historic Christian creed or tradition or theological system. That's where exemptions should come into play. In my mind, that's where exemptions should come into play. But what's more important to me is saying, um, then if we're, you know, if if we're going to say, I'm not going to do this or whatever else, we just need to suffer well. We need to suffer with joy. We don't need to call names. We don't need to condemn governors or political systems or whatever else. The Christian way is different than that. The Christian way is not the way America fights. And that's part of maybe what I'm getting to is the main topic of the day. Um, We're used to ideas of us versus them, black hats and white hats, good guys and bad guys. Like, Like that's the way 
our social structure works. That's the way our political division fuels itself. And it wants you to be more on one side and entrenched in that side than on another side. So that, that's the way it's going to play out. And so from that then, I think we as Christians get drawn in to being more um, political in some ways than, than trying to filter things through a truly Christ-centered grid where the kingdom matters, right? And that's what I'd say even on this previous topic as I'm kind of moving away from that and moving into the primary one of the day is the secret to all of these challenges. Because again, I, I think so often in life, there's no singular one right way to approach a thing when it comes to like, again, a vaccination or no vaccination, right? People are going to look at that from two different points of view and they're going to have all sorts of different things that are going to back them up in whatever way. Here's my thing on it whatever side you're landing on, you better sound a whole lot like Jesus and you better sound really, really self-sacrificing and you better not be complaining a whole lot about stuff. Like, cause, cause the world is watching how we interact with these tough things. And so, you know, even as I spit on my microphone here, um, even as I try to process this through, I got to go like, that's got to be still the compass. The compass can't be the details. The compass has to be, how do I display Christ in every one of those details? How do I sound like I'm, full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. And how do I make sure I'm not ranting and groaning and mumbling and calling people silly childish names as an adult, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, like, like how do I just show that I'm kind of above the problems of this world, even as I'm facing the problems of this world, that's the way I got to do it. And there's been some people I've talked with uh, on this subject that, you know, or certainly maybe on a different side than me that have done that masterfully. Like I'm very, very impressed by just how gracious and kind they've been on that uh, subject. And then there's been others that I go like, that's just obnoxious, you know, and there's obnoxious on the other side. There's certainly obnoxious on the pro mask, pro vaccinated people. Like there can be real obnoxiousness there too. And, and many of those people I know aren't necessarily Christians, so the rules are different, but for the ones who are Christians, there should not be any obnoxious spirit there. Like there should be grace and compassion and understanding and peacemaking and trying to help in the process of difficult things, right? That's kind of thing there. Stop that one, move on to the next topic that's sort of related. All right, so that one, and I think the one that will then be fetching the title of this day is the idea that, and I think all of that stuff I just talked about has a relationship in that we've heard a lot of this throughout the last year, but I, I think about it as being an evangelical. I've been hearing this since I was sort of aware of things, which is probably the Reagan administration. That's really when I was like, oh, I'm, I'm a teenager now. I know stuff. Um, but uh, it's this idea, and, and I want to be clear. I'm trying to figure out the clearest way to say it, um, but I'm more and more concerned or I'm convinced of the idea that for a Christian to be anti-government is to be anti-Jesus and anti-gospel. I want to say that again. For a Christian to be anti-government is to be anti-Jesus and anti-gospel. That is a bold claim that will land me in hot water. And a few of you, I'm sure, are going to be like, okay, I'm going to write a rather lengthy and kind of terse email to Matt about this. I'm choosing that title, and it's probably a little overblown, but it'll, it'll, it got you to click, I'm sure. All right, so anyway, so here, here's what I'm trying to drive out about this. Um, I, I think there's been a lot, certainly in the last year and a half, two years, with COVID, for example, I've heard a lot from, from my Christian evangelical tradition of a very anti-government 
point of view. Um, and, and like I said, this is historical to my evangelicalism growing up. And so uh, it's always been the government is not the solution. Government's the problem. Government is broken. Um, government is out to get you. We need to worry about the government. We need to be armed in relationship to the government. Governments always take advantage of people. And so there's always been kind of this tone of government is bad and we need to be wary of government. Now, I want to be, again, clear here right now. Um, I am not here to defend the antics of government. I'm not here to defend the bureaucracy of government. I'm not here to defend all of the moving parts that are broken in the context of what we see in government. That's not my thing. My thing is to say the world is watching us and how we relate to our government. The world is wanting, wanting to see if we are uh, calm or freaked out. They're wanting to see if we seem to trust God or we trust our human resolve to deal with the problems of government. That's what they're watching. But then there's something perhaps even more deep to this, which is what does God tell us in relationship to government? And if we are saying, God, I know you say that, but I disagree with you. Let's just be clear that we're disagreeing with God in the context of the government. And even a step further, we might be saying, you know what? And I'm so going to stand against government. I don't care of disbelieving people. Watch my life standing against government and go, well, that seems to be what you're saying is true to religion and Jesus and the gospel. And therefore, we're giving them a false understanding of Jesus and the gospel by way of our stance on the government. That's kind of what I'm getting at. So the passage in play for the day is one that I've dealt with, I think, a couple of times probably in the last few years, but I want to bring us back to it again because I think repetition can help us process through the problem here. So Romans chapter 13, Paul starts off in verse 1. Now, maybe before I get into that, let me take you back to chapter 12 really quick. Uh, The first 11 chapters of Romans are all theology. Because this is true, because you were a sinner and Jesus saved you and Jesus endowed you with his power, his peace, his spirit, his provision, his stuff, right? You are to be different in the world. And then chapter 12 to the end of the book is all about how we're to be different in the world. And so chapter 12 is like this big picture of, hey, man, you've been given gifts, so use those. You've been given empathy, so display those. You've been giving the message, given the message of doing good in a bad world, so be good in the face of evil. Uh, don't overcome evil with bad things. Overcome evil by being a good person. And then from there, he goes into chapter 13 on government. And he starts off in verse 1, and he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Verse two, therefore, whoever, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. So um, this one gets me in trouble all the time and I'm not sure why, you know, I, I think I know why, which is we just don't like it. And don't get me wrong. I've said this before openly on the podcast. There's all sorts of stuff in the Bible I don't like. I just don't like it. I think it's dumb. I think it's uh, backwards thinking. I think it's old school. I think uh, it just sounds crazy to me. Like, don't boil a goat in its own mother's milk. Woo! Right? Like, so, so I want to be clear about that. Like, but I also want to be clear that it wins and I lose. And I say that every time. It wins and I lose. And what's interesting about this passage in Romans is that it isn't like, well, you know, it's really tough to interpret what's meant here. Right? So, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. 
That's not hard to see, right? All the authority comes from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. And remember, Paul is writing during the Roman occupation of Israel. Paul is writing during the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that was really just maintained by the threat of the sword. I mean, we are not talking about a benevolent democracy here. We're talking about thugs, man. We're talking about powerful authoritarian thugs. And Paul says two pretty radical things. One is God put them there. And then the second radical thing is, if you resist them, you resist him. So let's be clear. When I then said at the beginning, to be anti-government is to be anti-Jesus and anti-gospel. What I'm saying at its core is, to be anti-government is to be anti what God has A, established, B, appointed, and C, claims to be his own authority in the world that you're living in. And this is true for every government. I know that freaks you out right now because you're like, well, what about the Taliban? And what about China? And I go, all I know is either this is true or this is baloney. You can decide for yourself. If you decide this is crap, I don't believe Romans 13. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That is dumb. God didn't appoint these governments. Fine, take it up with God. I didn't write the book. I'm just the mailman. I deliver the mail. We're reading somebody else's mail in some ways too. I get that. But that's kind of what it's just telling us flat out, right? Then he goes into verse three, for rulers are not a terror to do good, but to bad. You know, why would you have any fear of those who are in authority? If you're doing what is good, you're going to be approved, right? Because why? Verse four, he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain. Again, the pox mormana for he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjugation or subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now, again, that collection of thoughts is pretty airtight, you know? I mean, again, we would have to do a lot of kind of grammatical gymnastics to be like, well, I know it says they're God's servant. I know it says be in subjection to. I know it talks about if I do this, I'm getting God's wrath for going against government. I know if I resist the authority, I'm resisting God. But none of that is true. Like, that's not really true. When I resist authority and I resist government, I'm actually doing the business of God. I'm actually honoring God by standing against the government. That's the more godly thing. No, that sounds like Genesis 3. Did the Lord really say? You know what I mean? It's like, no, the Lord really said. And I know right now I'm starting to sound like a little bit of a punk. I'm going to go ahead and pull my reel back and pull it back a little bit because I'm not trying to sound like a punk. I'm just being kind of silly right now. Because I read this and I go, it just seems like too painfully obvious what Paul's point is, right? He's saying the way you deal with government is not to be anti-government. Because to be anti-government is to be anti the God who established it, the God who calls it his servant, and the God who says, if you're not subject to it, I will put you under my wrath. That's what it says. In the simplest black and white on the surface, the most likely answer is the obvious answer kind of thing. That's what it's getting at. So when we decide we're going to be anti-government, then what we're actually doing is being anti-God. We're saying, God, I don't agree with you. I don't like the manager you put in place. I don't like the management system that you seem to say is what counts, which again, I go back to when Paul writes this, the government was far worse than our government today. So when people are complaining about the U.S. government, as it's some kind of existential problem, I'm like, man, you should live in a lot of other places, right? Like this one's pretty sweet. 
right? In comparison to a lot of stuff, it's pretty sweet. So anti-government in the United States seems a little bit strange to me, right? Um, but more importantly, our our attitude, and that's what I'm getting at here, it's our attitude in relationship to government. That's the thing that if our attitude is anti, then we're having an anti-attitude toward God because God is linking himself and government together. I mean, even just that illustration of government is a servant of God, right? A servant for your good. It's one that he has deployed. If we said, well, pastors are servants of God, or we said, um, you know, uh, missionaries are servants of God or whatever else. I mean, we wouldn't be like, well, not really servants of God. Like we wouldn't start to doctor it up. I'm like, no, they're servants of God. And in the same way, that's what Paul's trying to say, right? And you got to understand this dude has been imprisoned by the Roman government. This guy's been beaten by the Roman government. Like, Keep in mind, like the worst thing that's ever happened to any of us with the Roman or with the U.S. government is maybe we had the tax man come and give us a hard time. Like, honestly, you know, this dude actually suffered at the hands of the Roman government and yet says this, right? But his purpose behind this is even more deep. He says in verse eight, oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another, he fulfills the whole law. The commandments that you've read, such as don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet. All of these other commandments are summed up in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Notice that what Paul is linking is the ability of loving a neighbor to the concept of submitting to government. In other words, the way we model a love of neighbor is our support of and submission to government. Now, I'm going to give you a quick out on this one where I go, here's where you don't have to submit to government. You don't have to submit to government if government openly and clearly asks you to sin against a clear statement of scripture. You don't have to obey in that point. See that in Acts chapter 5. There, the government at hand, the religious government, but government for the Jews, told the apostles, you can't preach the gospel anymore. And they're like, we're sorry, we're going to have to keep doing that. Here's what's interesting. They didn't go get a lawyer, they just took the beating, right? In other words, they said, uh, we understand your position, we can't stop doing what God tells us to do, but we'll, we'll, we'll take the beating for it, we'll suffer for it, that's okay. And in that, you know what they did? They suffered with joy. And not only did they suffer with joy, but when they came out the other side of the beating, they didn't come out and say, you know what, those jerks in there, they're a bunch of dirty, rotten, no good politicians, and they beat us, and they, they, they did things to us that just because we were wanting to exercise our faith, no, they were like, man, we were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Like, they saw that as like a high five, chest bump, knuckle bump. I mean, like, that was their tone again. The heart is what I'm getting at here. The tone is what I'm getting at here. Instead of acting as though we are offended, we're disgusted, we're bothered by how terrible government can be, no, they were like, man... Any chance I get to suffer for Jesus, I'm going to celebrate. Any chance I get to make much of Jesus and hardship, I'm going to take advantage of that. That's like prime real estate to make much of Jesus and the gospel. Therefore, when we just sound like we're angry at government, we're against government, we're critical of government, it sounds nothing like Jesus and it does not highlight the gospel. In fact, if anything, it causes people to think about Jesus and the gospel in very negative ways. They go, wow, Christians are more political than they are kingdom-minded. And Christians are more kind of immersed in wanting the world that they want in this world than wanting to see people rescued from this world to the world that is to come. See, that's why Paul puts the framework as he does. It's weird, but he's like, submit to government because it shows love, right? Be engaged in the process of wanting to kind of back where you can back government. Don't pick needless fights with government because it shows love. 
And then he says this. He says, besides, you know the time, the hour has come for us to wake those who have been asleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies. Well, where did that come from? Nor in drunkenness, nor in sexual immorality or sensuality. We're like, that's right, man. We got to get rid of all that stuff. He says, nor in quarreling or jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Quarreling and jealousy are as bad as orgies and drunkenness to Paul. But notice he's sandwiching love between those two things. He says, submit to government, love your neighbor, don't fuel and feed your your own self-interest, right? Don't be a person of darkness that cares about quarreling and is jealous and is angry about the way things are. No, he says, put on the armor of life. Don't gratify your own desires, your way, your wants, your rights. Just don't do that. He says, it's again about us displaying love of neighbor. I cannot emphasize this enough. Because when we fail to do that, we fail Jesus and we fail the gospel. When we put our own self-interest first, we in essence are being anti-Jesus and anti-gospel Because the whole reason he lets us stick around on this rock is to show gospel and Jesus. And we show that primarily through love. And so I think about examples between us and government throughout the Bible, right? So think about Daniel, poor guy. His country gets invaded. He's forced to serve the government that invaded his country. And go back and read the book of Daniel and see how many times he said, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, you're an idiot, dude. I'm going to stand up against you. This is a corrupt government with a corrupt system and everything else. He doesn't do that. He worked his butt off to help Nebuchadnezzar succeed, right? And the only time he ever stood, quote, against Nebuchadnezzar, he did it very humbly. He did not complain about the decree. He didn't gripe about the compl- decree. He didn't talk about how unjust the decree was. He simply prayed and took the punishment, right? And he doesn't complain about it the whole time. He's like, all right, it's just worth it. That's how we roll. Esther, similar thing. She is forced into basically sex trafficking to become the queen of a pagan king that screwed her people over. And you look at her tone throughout, it is not, I'm going to go confront the king now. It's not that at all. Or I'm going to complain about my circumstances. It's not that either. She's trying to figure out how to solve problems in the context of her surroundings, just as Daniel was trying to solve problems in the context of his surroundings. Or I think about the entire New Testament. Most of those dudes died at the hands of Roman government. And yet Paul is not complaining about the Roman government. Peter's not complaining about the Roman government. Both of those dudes actually go out of their way to say, honor the Roman government. You know, the ones that killed them both. That's what they do. All the New Testament writers are going way out of their way to not talk trash or smack about Rome in any way. And it's not because they're afraid. It's because they love Rome. Daniel loved Babylon. Esther loved Babylon. And they love their people. And that's the key. See, the problem is when we're anti-government, it means we don't love our neighbor. We don't care about our neighbor that is government, right? Because government isn't just this monolithic machine, right? Cops are government. They're the only form of our government that are armed, in fact, in our society, right? Armed government for us is police officers, and they need to be loved, 
right? And then you got kind of go up the chain, right? Legislators and uh, of the state and senators of the state and then the governor of a state. And we got legislators and senators of different states. And, you know, so you got in-house and out-of-house ones and everything else. And all these individuals and government workers are working all sorts of different fields and everything else. These are ultimately our neighbors. And when we start complaining about our neighbor, be big or small, it does not say we love them, and it does not communicate we trust God, and it does not show the gospel, and it does not display Jesus well, and that is the problem. And so, in my own humanness, do I have opinions? Yes. In my own humanness, would I love to complain all the time about all the problems of government? Sure. Would I love to complain about politicians? Absolutely. Does that mean that I'm to lack any sense of critical thinking when it comes to politicians? No, I'm supposed to have critical thinking about that. But even in that, when I look, for example, at President Biden and what's happened in Afghanistan, and I do think that there was a lot of real substantial mistakes made, that should not drive me to be like, that stupid idiot. It should drive me to be like, I need to pray for that guy. Back when President Trump was president and I was looking at some of his decisions around COVID, I disagreed with those decisions. I didn't think they were prudent from a medical perspective. I felt they were driven by a financial thing, but I shouldn't be like, he's a stupid idiot. I should be like, I need to pray for that dude, right? But if I'm running around talking about how everybody's stupid idiots, all the world's hearing is, I don't love my neighbors. I think some of my neighbors are just stupid idiots and I'm going to stand behind it. Like that does not share something different. That's just the same. It's more of the same. Now, I get that disbelieving people are going to do it. They should. They absolutely should. I get how disbelieving people are not going to be consistent. I get how disbelieving people are going to be angry and frustrated and mad, and they're going to call people a lot of names. I totally get that. I think they should. Why not? Right? Try to make the world a better place for your own power. But that's the opposite of Christianity. It's the opposite of Jesus. We're not trying to make the world a different place through power. We're trying to make the world a different place through love, right? Through patience, through grace, compassion, and kindness, trying to make the world a different place, not by grumbling and complaining, because Paul told us, don't do that, because, oh man, nobody wants to listen to that. Nobody comes to Jesus because his people are grumbling and complaining. Trust me, I am worn out on how we grumble and complain. That is not going to do it. And so if we want to take Jesus seriously, and we want to take the gospel seriously, and we want to take our calling seriously, we can't afford to be anti-government, anti-society, anti-culture. No, we need to love our community. We need to love our system. We need to be in there to make a difference. You should get involved, not there to try to stop stuff, but rather to guide stuff. Be a Daniel, be an Esther, plug into it, right? Don't sit on the sidelines and lob grenades. Nobody needs that, right? People are going to be rescued to God by that. And certainly we're not going to change the system in any substantial substantial way for the sake of Jesus and doing it that way. So we don't want to do it that way, right? We want to do it different. We want to say Jesus is the lens. This world is not my home, right? Uh, All persons and all systems, I need to have brotherly love for, not contempt against. And I believe if we can take some ownership of that, and if we can repent for some of what we've done, and that we can get better at living these ways that we're called to live, then in fact, I think we might turn this mess around as far as even how many people are leaving the faith and how many people are disinterested in Christianity and how in a lot of ways our reputation is at an all-time low. I think we can turn that around and we can be the types of people God wants us to be, which is his everyday missionaries.